The season of Advent is probably one of my favorites of the whole year. It, it kind of uh, builds into Christmas and kind of builds in with this season of waiting and ex- anticipation. And for many of you, you may be familiar with Advent. You may have grown up in a church that did Advent. And some of you, this may be new and different for you that you've never heard of Advent. But it's this time of, of waiting and anticipation, this time of building up to know that God is going to do something big and something amazing, yet He's not doing it yet. And so So we're just kind of waiting and anticipating that he's going to do something great. And we enter this season, kind of this reminder that for thousands of years, the nation of Israel and really all of creation had been waiting for this Redeemer to come. It's been waiting for redemption. It's been waiting for forgiveness, for the Messiah, for the Anointed One to come and to save us and to to forgive our sins. And for thousands of years, Israel waited for Christ to be born. And we are kind of on the other side of that. And we are celebrating this Christmas season that hope is here. And so every week from here till Christmas, we're going to be lighting one of these candles. And each one of these candles represents a different theme. These are the words on these boards behind me. And so each week has a different theme and a different topic. And so the first one is hope. Because we need to understand the desperation that we are in apart from Christ. And so we're going to be in Psalms chapter 130 uh, this morning, and we're going actually going to spend all four weeks of Advent in the book of Psalms. And I know most of you, your Bibles are just automatically falling over to the book of Hebrews, uh, but flip over to the left a little bit, about halfway through is the book of Psalms, and we're going to be in Psalm 130 this morning. And this is a very fitting psalm for us because it's, a collect, it's part of a collection of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. Right? And the Songs of Ascent, um, or a song of degree, it may say in your Bible, the Song of Ascent are, are a group of songs that the Israelites would sing three times a year. They would travel from wherever they were in Israel to Jerusalem, to the temple in Jerusalem, and they would make this journey at least three times a year, most of the time three times a year, at least once a year, um, to, for these special festivals, these special holidays, and holy days, these national celebrations, Passover, uh, the Day of Atonement, they would make these special journeys, and these were the songs they would sing wherever they came from. They would start uh, in Psalm 120, and they would start singing it, and then they'd make their way to 121 and 122, and they'd sing all the way up. The closer they got, the further into the Psalms they would sing, and if a new group joined your traveling party, you'd start over with them in 120 and 121. And so we find ourselves in 130 this morning, kind of this building up to this celebration. Uh, this building up to this celebration of Easter, or not Easter, excuse me, we'll get there eventually, but this celebration of Christmas um, and this song that, that is building us up and walking us to this celebration time. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 130, and we'll read all eight verses together. And in verse 1, it says, Out of the depths I call to you, Yahweh. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive for my cry for help. Yahweh, if you consider sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. I wait for Yahweh. I wait and I put my hope in His word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Verse 7, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord. And with Him is redemption in abundance. And He will redeem Israel for all its sins. Let's pray together. God, I thank You so much for this time of year. 
God, this season that builds us up into Christmas and the most amazing event that we know. God, this start of a plan that you had written thousands and thousands of years beforehand to bring us to the birth of a child. And God, I pray this morning that we realize that that is where our hope lies. So God, I pray that you will speak through your word this morning. God, I pray that you will speak to our hearts wherever we are at in this journey and wherever we are at building up to Christmas. God, let us find that hope is here in your word and hope is here in you this morning. God, let us eagerly anticipate not just your first coming, but God, the day that you are coming back. And so, God, I pray in this moment that you will speak. And I pray that we will sit and listen with anticipation and with expectation, knowing that you are about to do something great in our lives and throughout this world. And so, God, I pray that we just be obedient. And I pray that we be students of your word this morning, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Marcel Jamel was a university student and an English teacher, and she lived with her two sisters in the city of Kabul, uh, Afghanistan, when the Taliban took over a few months ago. And life drastically changed for her as she was living in that city when this takeover happened. And she started writing in her journal. Um, she'd been kind of writing in journals for her whole life, but she really started writing and kind of published some of her journal writings uh, in those days before she was able to leave the country. And so I just want to share with you uh, some of the things that she wrote in her journal. She starts off with this. She says, it's the ninth day that we've only had rice to eat. It's the only food that we can prepare and really the only food we have. The groceries are open, but they're not safe for us to go to. In fact, we do not feel safe even in our own home. They're searching homes. We know that our home is no longer safe. It's no longer a safe shelter for us three young ladies with no male guardian to protect us. We are scared that they will come into our house and impose their laws on us, but we have nowhere else to go. It is the ninth day that we have slept in our house with all the doors and windows locked. It is the ninth day that we've hardly slept at all in this prison we used to call home. A different day, she writes, that every morning I receive tens of messages from friends Everyone is searching for a way to escape this country and find a normal life. But we are not sure normal life is possible here or anywhere. I never wanted to live such a life with no job, no university, and nothing to live for. While she was searching for all these options, they, they tried to find a way of escape. They tried to find a way out of this country that they couldn't live in anymore. And so uh, they uh, were emailing and trying to get documents so they could claim refugee status in some other country. They were hoping that someone would allow them passage. They were hoping and they were praying that someone would come and rescue them from this prison they used to call home. And so finally they got an email from the, the British government, from the British embassy, saying they were cleared to leave the country. And so they had all their stuff, they packed it all up, and they got this email, and they were so excited to get this email, and, and they hired a driver to take them to the airport because it wasn't safe for them to travel on their own. So they, they hired this driver, a friend of theirs, to act as their dad to take them to the airport. And they got to the airport only to find there were thousands of other people there at the airport, thousands of other people desperately needing a rescue, desperately needing 
to get out of this desperate, dark situation they found themselves in. And so they got in with this crowd and, and they, they stood with these thousands of other people that were in desperate situations. And they ended up sleeping on the ground there that night and taking turns waiting for one another and just waiting and waiting and waiting and still no food, nothing to drink. And finally, after 26 hours of being there at the airport, a British officer came and he checked their documents. And they held up their documents and they showed him the documents. And he held them for a moment and he said, these are no good. Just take these and go back home. These are worthless. And they're like, no, but we got an email from the embassy. We got an email saying that there was hope for us, that we could get out of it. We got an email clearing of us. And he said, look around you. Every one of these people got an email. It's worthless. Just go back home. There's no way that you can get out of here today. And she writes in her article, I can't stop my tears thinking about my motherland. I felt helpless, useless, and hopeless. You see, she'd come to the point where she knew there was nothing she could do. She had done everything in her power to, to sustain her life. She had done everything in her power to improve her situation. And nothing was going to make it any better. Nothing was going to improve this situation. The only thing that was going to make this situation any better whatsoever is if somebody else came to her rescue, if somebody else allowed her to pass through this, this stop gate, if somebody else rescued her from this situation... You see, your situation is probably very different than this young lady, but my guess is that I'm looking in a room, and maybe folks online, that some of you have felt that exact same way as this young lady. The circumstances were different, but you felt the same way. You have felt the hopelessness. You felt useless, and honestly, you felt helpless. We're living in a situation where you can't do anything about it yourself. That you have tried and you've tried and you've done this and you've done that, but nothing is getting you out. The only thing that you have to hope for is that there is somebody else out there that's going to rescue you. And so your situation feels hopeless and you're unsure even if your prayers are worth sending up anymore. See, that's what we see in the first part of this psalm. In Psalm 130, the very first part, the guy is telling you about this hopeless, desperate situation that he is in. And he starts off in verse 1, and he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Yahweh. He's using the personal name of God. And he says, out of the depths. The depths refer either to the deepest part of the ocean or this a great abyss, this place of great separation. It's described as a dark place, an isolated place. There, there's no connection. There's no fellowship. There, there's only loneliness and this feeling of being isolated, feeling of being alone. There's no place like it, and there's no place that you can look where there's any light of hope whatsoever. And he says, this is where I'm at, surrounded by darkness. And for some of you, it didn't take long. You were in that spot that depression and despair set in. And from this place of despair, he's crying out to God. He uses the personal name of God. In verse 2, he's begging for God to hear him. In verse 2, he says, Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry. God, I am desperate. And God, I'm crying out to you because I know there's nothing I can do for myself. You are my only hope. That You are the only chance I have. And God, if there's anything that's going to improve this, if there's any way out of this abyss, if there's any way out of this darkness, you're the only way that's going to do it. And then we read on in verse 3 and we find out how he got into the abyss, how he got in this dark place, and the reason that there is all this darkness and separation. You see, in verse 3, he comes to this realization that 
Maybe he doesn't even deserve to be heard in the first place. Verse 3, he says, Yahweh, if you consider sins, Lord, who could stand? He says, if you consider, if you, can, if you take a record, if you mark down, if you keep a record of sins, God, I, I, I have no hope. There is nothing that I can do. Many of you have felt that situation, that, that, that same feeling. Some of you have felt it in many different ways. And some of you may have felt it when you knew you were busted for something. Maybe you were speeding and, and all of a sudden you passed a cop and so you tried to slow down and act like you weren't doing anything wrong and then all of a sudden the man with the blue lights is right behind you. And then you pulled over to the side of the road and I don't know what cops do. I'm going to ask them someday. But like they make you sit in that car for what feels like an eternity and you just know you are busted in that time. And all that's going through your mind is, how am I going to get out of this? Like, what excuse can I come up with that's going to make this okay? And the reality is that you're sitting there like, nothing. There's nothing, man. He got me. There's no way that I'm getting out of this. I am busted. And so some of you felt that when those blue lights were behind you and those blue lights were going. Some of you may have felt it like when you were a kid and you did something at school, right? And I grew up with parents who were very clear that if we got in trouble at school, we'd get in twice as much trouble when we got home. Unfortunately, I also lived in a, an area where everybody knew everybody, right? So like the principal of my high school had my parents' phone number and would gladly call them at any moment, at any time, and any day, right? So we lived with this constant threat that if you got in trouble at school, you were getting it twice as bad at home, right? We didn't have this whole, like, if you got in trouble at school, then maybe it was the teacher's fault. We didn't live with that kind of reality, right? That's a whole different mindset. We didn't have that. But in, in our reality that we lived up with, if you got in trouble at school, you had to go home, and you had to face it at home. And so for some of us, we got in trouble at school. There was something that happened, and, and maybe the teacher told you they were going to send, this was the most dreaded thing in my life, I'm going to send a note home to your parents, and then you had to like spend the rest of your day knowing that note was already in your folder, knowing that note was already in your backpack. And then even worse, like they weren't just going to send a note, they were probably going to call as soon as they could. And like you had to spend the rest of your day knowing that you were busted. And so you were trying to come up with excuses and you were trying to come up with all these thoughts and you just knew regardless of what you came up with, it wasn't going to work. Well, mom, the teacher said this. Mom, the teacher said that. No, you did this. You made this choice. Well, yeah, but here's what was going on, and here's what... No, you did it. Well, yeah, but no, you did it. And the teacher said you did it, and that's all that mattered. And you were busted, and you knew it. And so for hours on end, you had to live knowing this note was there, knowing that somebody had kept a record of it, knowing that you were going to have to stand before the judge of your parents, and you were going to have to face the criminal offense that you did, whatever it was that day. You see, this is what the writer is describing here, that if God keeps a record of your sins, if there is a note in your backpack, if there is a note that, that something you know you are busted, and then because of that, there's no hope. And so you just live in this anticipation of judgment. You just live in this anticipation that you are guilty and there's nothing you can do about it. You just live in this anticipation that one day it's just going to get worse. As bad as this situation is, it's only going to get worse because judgment is coming for you. You see, the author of Psalms doesn't just describe his situation. Do you notice what he said? If you keep records of sins, who can stand? And the answer is nobody 
can stand. None of us. Why? Because Paul tells us in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, we've got to understand that all of us are in this same hopeless, helpless, desperate situation. All of us are busted and know that there's no excuse that we can give that's going to work for a God. Matthew Henry, one of the older commentators, commentators on Scripture, he writes this. He says, If he, being God, proceeds against us, we have no way to help ourselves. We cannot stand, but certainly, but shall certainly be cast. If God deal with us in strict justice, we are undone. If he makes remarks on our iniquities, he will find them many and great. Greatly aggravating and greatly provoking. And then, if he should proceed accordingly, he would shut us out of all hope of his favor. And shut us up under his wrath. And what could we do to help ourselves? We could not make our escape. We could not resist. And we could not bear under the weight of his aggravating hand. You see, we are in this hopeless helpless situation we are doomed without any hope for the future if we are left on our own we are like the lady i talked about at the very beginning of this sermon when we are left helpless useless and hopeless knowing there is nothing we can do to better ourselves our situation and some of you sitting here this morning this is the worst christmas message you've ever heard Because this doesn't sound at all like we're building up to Christmas. This doesn't sound at all like the excitement in the birth of a a baby. This doesn't sound like anything that we want to hear. But the truth is, if we don't understand how desperate and dark sin makes us, then we won't appreciate the hope of forgiveness that He offers us. You see, to come to hope in Christ, to to come to the beauty of Christmas, we've got to understand how desperate and dark we are. We've got to understand how how bad our situation is. And if we don't understand how hopeless and helpless we are, we're never going to appreciate the hope of the forgiveness that He offers, that God does actually hear our prayer, and He offers this hope of forgiveness. See, I want to be clear that this forgiveness isn't anything that we earn or anything we deserve. In fact, in verse 4, he makes that quite clear, that it is coming from God and God alone. In verse 4, he says, But with you there is forgiveness. I'll pause right there. We'll finish the rest of that verse in just a second. But with you, there is forgiveness. Notice the forgiveness is from God. It is not from me. It's not from anything that Michael Rakes does to earn forgiveness. It's not anything that Michael Rakes does to to gain forgiveness. Let's be honest. It doesn't say that with the church there is forgiveness, that with religion there is forgiveness. It doesn't say with enough good deeds there is forgiveness. No, with you there is forgiveness. Our only hope is like the three ladies in Afghanistan that someone will come to our rescue and someone else will save us because we cannot do it on our own. And our hope is only in His forgiveness. So, But with you, there is forgiveness. With you, there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. I want you to see this beautiful goal that God has for redemption and for forgiveness. It is that he is revered, that he is feared, that he is respected, that he is honored because he offers forgiveness. It causes us to fear him and respect him more. Not because uh, we're, we're afraid of him, but because we don't want to disappoint him. I don't know if you ever had parents that gave you a second chance when you didn't deserve it. I don't know if you ever knew that you were busted and you were just waiting and you knew you were in so much trouble and then all of a sudden you were just waiting for the hammer to drop. You, you were waiting for those magic words at our house of like, go get the belt. And, and then it didn't happen. And you were just sitting there like, wait, I don't, I don't know what to do right now. 
Like I'd already like padded the backside. I was already ready for this. I just knew this was coming. And now you're telling me it's not. And so for some of us in that situation, we just didn't know how to react. And, and for some of us, we, it totally kind of changed our mindset and maybe our relationship with our parents because they had the opportunity to discipline us. They had the option. They had the reason to discipline us. They had the reason to make us serve a punishment. But they didn't. And so for some of us, it kind of changed our attitude a little bit. It, it, we, we found this forgiveness that caused respect of our parents, and our different attitude caused us to approach them a little differently because we knew they had power, we knew they had authority, but they didn't use it all of a sudden in the way that we thought they did. And so for some of us, we changed our behavior, not out of like fear of punishment, but basically out of respect for them because we didn't want to mess up a second time. Or maybe some of us, it was fear, like we didn't want to pay for both penalties at the same time. And for, for some reason or another, their forgiveness called us to rethink the situation. And that's what God is telling you in this passage. Part of the reason that He has forgiven you, it's not so you can go out and you can just keep sinning. The reason He's forgiven you and the reason that you can call out for forgiveness, the reason we have Christmas, the reason we have hope, is so that you will fall so madly, deeply, passionately in love with Him that you won't want to ever go against Him again. That you will fall so madly, deeply, passionately in love with Him that He is all that you want. That you wouldn't think of turning your back on Him. You wouldn't think of disobeying Him ever again. You see, we so often have this attitude that, well, I'm forgiven and so it doesn't really matter. I've got this free pass with my life. That, that hey, I, I'm forgiven so I can do what I want. You know, I said that prayer one time. I walked down in front of the church. They even dunked me in some water. And yeah, I did all that. And so I'm just good to go. I've got this license now that gives me freedom to do whatever I want and live the way I want. You see, and I can just mess up and mess up and I just pray for forgiveness and it all gets wiped away. But what he's telling you in his scripture is that's not the goal. The goal is that not, there's not this license to sin. The goal is that you have forgiveness and this new respect for Him. You have this different attitude and maybe a different approach and a different relationship with Him. You see, He has given you this hope of forgiveness so that you will love Him and you will come to Him. Not so that you can continue to turn your back on Him. Not so you can continue rebelling against Him and just magically hope it gets wiped away. So many of us came to Christ with this, we said this prayer and we did this thing and all of a sudden we just, it didn't make a difference in our life. And what he's telling you is that his forgiveness should change everything about the way you live your life. See, his forgiveness is our only hope of salvation. See, by the time the Psalms is written, this forgiveness is not yet fully available and it's not yet fully applied to the people that are writing it. You see, they are walking up this mountain. They are walking to Jerusalem year after year after year. And you know what they're doing? Every single year, they're going up to Passover. Every single year, they're going up to the Day of Atonement. And they're committing these sacrifices over and over and over again with this hope that this is going to cover my sins and hopefully the sins that I even forgot about. And they do this over and over and over again. And so what he's telling you is, listen, there, there's a time coming. They're waiting because they know there's a plan of forgiveness. They know they're waiting on this, this salvation to come. They know they're waiting on God. And so they have something to be looking forward to, something that they've seen and something they've hoped for. And I want you to notice in verse 5, he tells you that this is what they're doing. They're waiting and they're hoping and they're walking through these, these verses as they go up this mountain. And I want you to walk, we're going to walk through verse 5 in two different parts as we approach Advent and the season of waiting. And in verse 5, the very first part says, I will wait for Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. And again, he's using this personal tone with him. And he says, why? Why are you waiting for God? 
He said, I'm waiting for God because I realize I can't do anything on my own. I can't gain forgiveness for myself, and so I've just got to wait on Him. I've got to wait for His plan to work in His time. I've got to wait for His timing to bring His Savior into the world. And so to be honest with you, so often we get in trouble when we don't listen to the very first part of verse 5 and just wait. Wait on Him. Wait on Him instead of forcing our own ideas, instead of forcing what we want to happen in our time instead of His time. James Vaughn, one of the much older commentators, he, he said there are four reasons why God often makes us wait. The first one is waiting practices our patience of faith. Right? So a lot of folks will pick a year, a word of the year coming up in, in 2022, and this has been a trend for a couple years now where people pick a word that they want to live out and they want to kind of focus on. And for some folks, they, they dare to, to venture on patience. Right? And I've always been taught, if you pray for patience, be ready to exercise patience. Because He's going to make you do it. He's going to test that prayer. Did you really want that or not? So the first reason that God makes us wait is to exercise our patience in faith. He says the second reason that God makes us wait is it gives time for preparation for the coming gift that we're seeking. Sometimes we're praying for something, but honestly we're praying for it, but we're not even ready for it at the time. Right? Let me give you the reason here. In the book, of, in the, the folks in Israel, they were praying for the Messiah. They were ready for the Messiah. But understand that the Messiah wasn't just coming for Israel. He was coming for all the world. He was coming for a blessing for everybody. And so God is waiting for the time the world is ready. He's waiting for a time when the language is easy to understand. He's waiting for a time when roads can be built and travel is easy. He's waiting for a time when the Romans can come and there's peace and there's stability kind of in the land. And so the word and the gospel can spread like it never did before. He's waiting for the world to be ready. For some of you, you're waiting on God because you're praying for something, but you're not ready to receive it. I talk with a lot of folks who are ready to get married. In fact, there was a, one gentleman that I've talked with several times, and he said, I want you to join me in praying for a wife. I'm really praying that God, I want to start a family. I want to get married, and I, I'm, I'm getting to the age that most people think I, I should be beyond this, but this is what I'm really praying for. Above all else, this is what I want. I'm praying hard for this wife, and I want you to join me in praying for this. And I said, I'll be glad to pray that with you. And so we begin to talk and we begin to, to kind of share things together. And as we begin to, to communicate and kind of work through some things, I realized there's a whole lot of family issues that he's never worked through. I begin to realize there was a whole lot of uh, not really being content with himself. He didn't really have uh, an identity himself. There was a whole lot of personal insecurities that he didn't know how to work with himself. And so all the time he's praying for a wife, and all the time God's saying, you're not ready yet. Because you haven't found who you are and you haven't found contentment in me. And if we put a woman in this situation, she's just going to make it worse. Not because it's her fault, because it's your fault. Because you're praying for something that you're just not ready for yet. And he's not saying it's not going to happen. He's just saying, take some time, prepare for what you're going to get. So sometimes he holds off and he makes us wait to prepare us for what we're going to get. And the third reason... It says sometimes he makes us wait because it makes the blessing sweeter when it arrives. I don't know about you, but I've started doing a little more online shopping than I've ever done in my life. All right, I used to be the guy that flew in like the the on on the week of Christmas Eve, maybe not quite on Christmas Eve, and you run in the store and you get what you want and you get out. But now they've got this whole world of like you can buy anything online. And so you buy something online, and Amazon's like changed this whole game for me a little bit. They, like they can show up that day. 
But when you buy something online, you have to wait for it. There, there's this, these moments that it's coming in two to three days. And I, sometimes, I'm going to be honest with you, patience is not the word I've ever chosen because I don't want to have to wait for stuff any longer than I already have to. Like, I'm the type of person, if you tell me like, it's going to be three to five business days, then on day business day number three, like, I'm checking the, stack, the status. Like, I'm checking the tracking number. Where's my package at? Where's this thing at? And then when it gets there, like, it's a whole different ball game when it gets there. Like, I just bought this thing two days ago or three days ago, and I was super excited about it then, and now it's here. And now it's even more exciting. Like, I'm so pumped about it when it gets here. So sometimes he makes us wait because in the waiting, it builds the sweetness of when it arrives. It builds the moment that when it comes, there's, no, there's a new excitement that happens when it arrives. And he says, finally, the fourth reason that God makes us wait is that it shows the sovereignty of God to give when and as he pleases. That it causes us to submit to his sovereignty, acknowledging that he alone is God. Sometimes we just need to be reminded we're not in control. We think we are. We do everything we can to make ourselves in control. We, we, we do everything. We plan everything. We, we, we function everything. We do all the logistics. And we think we've got it all worked out. And sometimes God says, you just need to wait. And you just need to be reminded that I'm the one in control. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one calling the shots. I run the universe. And so you just need to wait and be realizing that you're not the one that you think you are. And so we wait. We wait for Yahweh. Our hope is in Him. It is not in ourselves. It is not in anything that we do. And the writer goes on in verse 5. Here's the second part. He says, I wait for Yahweh. I wait and I put my hope in His Word. God, I'm trusting in Your Word. I'm trusting in what You say is true. And the reason he does that is because all the way back in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, Moses wrote this. He said, God is not a man who lies or a son of man who changes his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The answer is no, that God has never made a promise that He's never kept. He's never made a commitment that He hasn't met. He's never made a a prophecy that He hasn't fulfilled over and over and over again. He's told the people of Israel, this is what's going to happen. And you may have to wait for it, but here it is. This is what's going to happen, and here it is. All the way to the very beginning of the people of Israel, when he told Abraham, he said, I want you to leave this land, and you're going to travel to this new place, and I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give it to your descendants. Do you realize they had to wait 400 years? They were in that land. They left and went to Israel or Egypt for 400 years, and then had to wander around in the wilderness for another 40 years, and then they were in the land. It took some time. They had to wait for that promise, but it came true. Every promise that God has made is always true. And so they're looking back even further than the promise of Abraham. They're looking all the way back into the book of Genesis in chapter 3. And right after the fall, right after sin enters into the world, he made this promise in, in, uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says there is one coming. And this one that's coming is going to strike the head of the serpent. He's going to be the one who comes and destroys sin. He's going to destroy the evil one. And he's going to be the one who ends this separation that sin has caused. And all the way back in the book of Genesis, God has been telling there's one that's coming. There's this Messiah. There's this anointed one. And the writer's saying, this is where my hope's at. This is where my trust is at. 
This is where the forgiveness, I know it's coming, and God, you promised it, and so I'm going to put my hope and my trust in your word because every time you make a promise, it always comes true, and if you promised everything and it's always come true, this one's not going to be any different. And so our hope is not in the circumstances around us. Our hope is in God's word, that the promise is there, and if the promise is there, the fulfillment is coming. So he doesn't put his hope in the circumstances. Remember where he's at? He's in the abyss, in the midst of the deepest part of the seas, and all surrounded by darkness. And yet his hope is in God's word. There is hope that the Redeemer, the promised one of God, is coming and God's going to keep it. You see, for us, we are standing in between times. Our Redeemer has already come. Hope is already here. And so we're not waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. We're waiting for the new promises to be fulfilled. You see, Christ says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back for you. You see, we're not waiting for Him to come the first time. We're waiting for Him to come back a second time. Why? Because He promised us that He would. And when He does, He's going to take us to a place, a glorious presence that's going to be there and for all of eternity. This place that's going to be, there's no separation and no sin. There's no scars and there's pain, no pain. We're never going to hear words like COVID or pandemic or, or variants or any of these things. They're never going to happen in this world. This is what we're anticipating. This is the hope that we're looking forward to. Why? Because this is the promise that He's made us in His Word. And His Word is always true. See, that's the theme in verse 6, that we can wait with anticipation and expectation. In verse 6, he says, I wait for the Lord more than the watchman in the morning. More than watchman for the morning. You see, the night watch is always the hardest. Many of you have served in military. Some of you are police officers. And you know that night times are hard. They're difficult. They're hard because it's dark. They're hard because you're tired. They're hard because the circumstances are not in your favor. It's difficult. You're the only one awake and you're tired. And there's darkness all around you. And you have to keep watch vigilantly. And the only thing that keeps you going in most of those times is you know that morning's coming. You know there's an end to this darkness. You know that when the sun pops over the horizon, the loneliness and the isolation, the darkness is going to come to an end. And so you'll sit through the night. You'll watch through the night because you know there's hope that in the morning it's coming just like it came yesterday, just like it came the day before, just like it came the day before that. You expect the sun to come up each and every day. And there's relief just over the horizon. And so we wait in anticipation and expectation, we wait because we know that just like the sun is coming up, we wait to know that God is going to keep His promises, that God is going to bring this Redeemer and salvation for them. And for us, He's going to bring Him again. See, in Christmas morning, the sun came up and the watch was over. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. When Christmas happened, there was this light. The sun rose and the watch was over. The waiting was over and all of a sudden all the darkness was dispelled. You see, even today we stand ready and watching, waiting for His return like the watchman of the morning. Some of you are living in a time and you are in the middle of the night. And your world is dark. And your world is cold and your world is isolated and separated. But morning is coming. The sun will return. And when he does, all of that will fade away. 
And I want you to share with you this morning that this should be exciting for us. We should be excited that hope is here and hope is beyond here. We should be so excited about this redemption that God has offered us, this forgiveness that God has offered us. We should be so excited that it just oozes out of us in every aspect. We should be so excited that we have hope in a world that is hopeless. We should be excited that we have something to look forward to when the rest of the world says, I don't have anything to live for now, much less in the future. We should be so excited that we cannot contain this, that we've got to share this hope for others and with others, that it overflows out of us into all others. You see, Psalm 130 doesn't end with me waiting and hoping for Christ. It actually ends with me being on mission for Christ and putting that mission and sharing the hope with everyone else around us. will not you look with me in verse 7 and 8, and we'll finish with these two verses. But as we read these two verses, I want you to notice the subject of these two verses and how different it is than what we've been reading before in verse 7. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with Him is redemption in abundance. And then verse 8, And He will redeem Israel from all its sins. Did you notice the subject there? See, back in verse 5, it was all about me. I will wait on the Lord. I will put my hope and trust in Him. I will wait for Him. It's all of me. I will do this. But all of a sudden, we get to verse 7 and verse 8, and the subject switches. There is no I in verse 7 or verse 8. It is all about Israel. It's all about this subject has changed, and it's all that Israel has replaced me. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. He will redeem Israel for it, all of its sins. You see, the writer's no longer concerned for himself. He, he says, I put my hope and trust in Christ already. And so now what's he doing? He's pleading for others to do the same. He's crying out for his mother country. He's crying out for all those that are around him. He's praying that they will find the same hope that he has. See, Christmas isn't just hope for me and my family. It's a hope that's meant to be shared with everybody. It's a hope that's meant to be for all the people all around the world. And so what if verse 7 and 8 became our prayers for Christmas? See, many of us sitting in this room, we've already cried out to Christ. We've already accepted His forgiveness. We've already had that hope. It's already been applied to our life. We know what the cross means. We know the hope that lies in the forgiveness that we have. And so for some of us, we don't need to live in verse 4 and 5 and 6. We need to live in verse 7 and 8. And we need to start pleading for others to see the hope that we have. And we need to not just plead with them, but we need to be the example of the hope. See, what if that became our prayers? What if instead of Israel, we substituted someone's name in that passage? What if we substituted a family member or a loved one in that passage and we read that passage with their name in it? What if we substituted our small little area of Cleveland or or Mount Ola or wherever your community is? What if we put that there? What if we put our nation's name in that verse What if we read it? What if we prayed the prayer and pleaded that Cleveland would put their trust in the Lord? What if we pleaded and prayed that America would put their hope in the Lord? For there is faithful love with the Lord and with Him is redemption in abundance. What if we lived that prayer out? What if we actually made our mission not just coming to light candles, not just coming to enjoy Christmas like we have it here with with our church family? What if we actually made Christmas about spreading hope all around the world? And all around our nation, not a false hope and untrue promises or a false hope that was invented by somebody else. What if we showed them that hope is here? And I don't mean here in this place. 
I mean hope is here in Christ. What if we showed them what abundant forgiveness looked like? What if we showed them where the hope of Christmas really was born on Christmas Day? What if we made it our mission to live out hope and to share this hope and to plead with all those that were around us that hope is here? What if we put somebody else there? America, put your hope in the Lord. Cleveland, put your hope in the Lord. A family member, a loved one, put your hope in the Lord. What if Christmas became less about us finding hope and more about us giving hope to all those that were around us? Let's pray together.